We are in the book of Genesis. We are now looking at the life of Abram. Uh, We've seen how God is setting in motion his project to restore and repair a broken world through this one man. And it starts with this call that that he hears when God says to Abram, lech lecha, in Hebrew, that is, get up and walk, start walking. And God puts uh, more to this call. He says, leave your father's house, your homeland, your comfort, life as you know it for a place that I'll show you. And so really, this call to Abram is a call to trust God with absolutely everything he has. And Abram essentially drops his net, follows God. Then becomes the father of a people who will drop their nets and follow God. And one of the ironies that I want us to see with Abram is that we can look at his life and say, wow, he lived such a a huge, big, heroic life. But the way he lived that big life was really through the mundane. The mundane act of walking. And he walked. He walked when God said, get up and go. He walked uh, hundreds of miles, trusting God with each step. He gets to the promised land. Even when he gets to the promised land, he never really possesses the land that God promises. He only lives on the margins of that land. And, and there he is, living this mundane life. In fact, those uh, margins today of the promised land look the same as what they did in Abraham's time. It's desert like this. That's where Abram's walking. And he's living this nomadic life as a shepherd in the most mundane place, the desert. And in all of this mundane, Abraham walks and he learns to walk with God. He learns to walk like God and he walks for God. And why do I say all of this? Because uh, mundane faithfulness is something I think that the church needs to recapture, where we forsake the sensational for the mundane, where we forsake uh, attention-seeking for obscurity, where we forsake the rat race of this world for the desert of walking with God. And the desert of walking with God is, is not us escaping the world, it's not us retreating the world, it's actually preparing us for the world like it did Abram. Because in every life, I I really believe this, I think that there are gonna be one or two moments, maybe three, that are gonna demand from us to rise up and do something big, to do something huge, that's gonna cost us a lot, where we have to put it all out there, where we have to step courageously into something, or we have to take a big stand for something. And that's what's going to go on for Abraham in our text today. And he's been prepared because he is walking with God in the desert. Now, to just spare you of all the names and uh, city names and people names of this, uh, here's what's going on in our text today. Um, And then we'll start reading it. But um, a mini world war kind of takes place in Abraham's world. The region of the Tigris, Euphrates, rivers that produced some of the great ancient civilizations like Babylon. In fact, in the Hebrew, Babel and Babylon are the same word. Uh, Four kings from this region joined forces in war against Abram's world. And these four kings rout the cities of Abram's world, including Sodom, which is where 
Lot lives, and they take captive men, women, children, uh, all the spoils of war as well. And now let's turn our Bibles to Genesis 14, verse 11, picking up. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. Genesis 14. And these four kings, these four kings that came from the east, seized all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food, and then they went away. They also carried off Abraham's nephew, Lot, and his possessions since he was living in Sodom. And a man who escaped came and reported this to Abram, the Hebrew. In fact, Hebrew, Ibri, means outsider. <laughs> now, Abram was living near the great trees of Mamre, the Amorite, a brother of Eshkol, and Honor, all of whom were allied with Abram. And when Abraham heard that his relative had been taken captive, he called out the 318 trained men born in his household, and he went in pursuit as far as Dan. And during the night, Abram divided his men to attack them and routed them, pursuing them as far as Hoboth, north of Damascus. He recovered all the goods and brought back his relative Lot and his possessions together with the women and the other people. After Abram returned from defeating Kirtlamer and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet Abram in the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. And then another king, Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. Praise be to the God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. And then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. The king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the people, but you can keep the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, with raised hand, I have sworn an oath to the Lord God most high, creator of heaven and earth, that I will not, not accept anything belonging to you, not even a thread or a strap of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. I will accept nothing but what my men have eaten and the share that belongs to the men who went with me to honor Ashkal and Mamre. Let them have their share. This is God's word. You can be seated. So let's start with this question. Why is Abram going to war? Well, in the ancient world, everything is organized around the family. The family is the basic organizing structure of the ancient world. Your family, then, is your life. Now, also because this is a patriarchal world, it means that everyone in the family is under the care and the protection of the oldest male in that family who's called the patriarch. This is why their name for family in, in Hebrew is Beit Av, which means the father's house, because it's the responsibility of the father to meet every single need of his household. In fact, if for uh, whatever reason, someone from the house, household would be marginalized in any sort of way, it's the father's responsibility to, to do whatever it takes to restore that person to the household. In fact, this is where we get the word redeem or redemption. Redemption, redeem, uh, simply means to restore what is lost or marginalized to the house of the father. Abram's father of a household. Lot belongs to his household. It is Abraham's responsibility to redeem Lot. 
even if he has to sacrifice everything, including his own life, in trying to do so. So this is not an option for Abraham. In verse 14, says, Abraham takes his 318 trained men. I'm like, trained men, 318. Wow, the Bible has its own story of of the 300. The Greeks have their story. Uh, Here we have the Bible story of the 300. And these are our men that are trained in Abram's household, the text says. So then I had to look up the word trained. What does that mean? It means follower. It's coming from the uh, root word uh, hanak, which means dedicated from... It's the same word we get Hanukkah from, which is the feast of dedication. So these trained men are dedicated followers who belong to Abram's household. And then I asked, well, what are they dedicated to? Are they just dedicated to Abram? Well, Genesis 18 says, God, God says this about Abram. He says, I've chosen Abram because he is one who teaches his children and his household the way of the Lord. So if you want the English New Testament word for these trained men, it's disciples. Abram has 318 disciples who have been trained to walk, to follow hard after Abram as Abram follows hard after God. So these are not men that are just dedicated to Abram. They are dedicated to Abram's God. And this made me ask, how many trained men, how many trained women do we have in our households? What, what people right now in your sphere of influence have you trained who are dedicated to walk wholeheartedly after the God that you're walking after? Who you right now can send into the world in a moment's notice to restore and bring home the lost and the marginalized? And this more and more is growing heavy, heavy on my heart for us as a church. Like, a church can be about a lot of things, but the bigger a church gets, the more it starts to become a stage, an audience, where we come and we hold services. But that's not what Jesus instructed his disciples to do. He said, I want you to go into all the world and make disciples. And so I'll just say, like, these are discussions that we're having a lot uh, in our leadership these days. In fact, in March, we are going to a conference in Orlando, and the sole uh, theme of this conference is, is disciple-making. Um, we have to be about this. Now, verse 15 and 16, look at them. Uh, we see that God gives Abram a miraculous victory. He defeats the four kings from the east. He redeems Lot. Uh, he's returning home as this great victor. And I, I just, right now in my mind, I can just picture Abram walking through uh, that valley. You come to 17, he comes to this valley called Valley of the King. 
and, and behind Abram is this huge train of freed captives and all the spoils of war just kind of following behind him. And I would say then what transpires in our text might be the greatest convergence of people and places in the entire Bible, at least for me, the most gratifying. Uh, And and let me just divulge a little bit. Uh, Let's start, first of all, with the place. Uh, This is the King's Valley. Uh, Today and later in the text will be called the Kidron Valley. This valley actually runs between two hills that now make up Jerusalem. Uh, The hill on the left from where you're looking right now is going up further would be the Mount of Olives. And then the hill to the right where you can still see the remnant of the platform to the temple during the time of Jesus, uh, that is Mount Moriah, probably the most famous hill in all the Bible. Now, in Abram's day, that that hill, uh, now we're looking the other way, so the hill on the left, um, Mount Moriah, uh, what, what was housed there was obviously not the temple, but this small city called Salem, And then also, if you know the Abraham story, uh, Mount Moriah is going to become very significant to Abram because even decades after our story, God's going to tell Abraham, again, lech lecha, get up and walk. Abraham's going to say, where? And God's going to say, to Mount Moriah. And then God says, yeah, and by the way, take your son. Take your son. And this journey for Abram will be the most intense walk in Abram's life. And then because of what happened that day and how it all culminated, Abram is going to name that place on Mount Moriah, Jehovah Jireh, which means the Lord provides. And so when you add Jireh to Salem, which is the name of the city in Abraham's, Jireh, Jerusalem, you have Jerusalem. But Abraham is going to call that place Jehovah Jireh, not because later the temple will be built in that exact spot, which is literally the replanting of God's garden. Abraham calls that place Jehovah Jireh because on that fateful day, his son Isaac was spared because the lamb wasn't. And then to think that Calvary is up on that hill. And you talk about Jehovah Jireh, that we are spared because God's lamb wasn't Christ, the lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. I mean, this is the place where the story is taking place. And it's in this valley then that Abram's going home and two kings come out to greet him. The first is Bera, and Bera, the name itself, means evil, and He's the king of Sodom, and Sodom is the city in the Bible. It's more than a place, but it's a, Sodom uh, symbolizes evil. And I'm not talking just sexual perversion right now, but, but the evil of pride and selfish ambition, uh, that's, that's Sodom, and Bear is the king of that. The other king that comes out to meet Abram is the king of Salem. His name is Melchizedek. You can see that in verse 18 to 20. And Melchizedek, Melchizedek means king of righteousness. And Melchizedek, Melchizedek is the king of Salem, which will later become the Jerusalem, probably the epicenter of God's story. 
Now, can you see Abram standing before these two kings with all the captives and the spoils of war behind him? One whose name means evil and the other whose name means king of righteousness. Because I want us to see how how Abraham treats these two kings because it couldn't be more different. Look at verses 22 and 23. But Abram said to the king of Sodom with raised hand, I've sworn an oath to the Lord God most high, creator of heaven and earth, that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or the strap of a sandal. So it can never be said that I made Abram who Abram is. Abram just gives everything back to him. All this stuff from Sodom that I redeemed, it's all back to you, king. Not even a thread or a sandal. And why is Abram doing this? Because Abram will not have his heart infected with Sodom in any way. Abram knows that when you possess the things of Sodom, that you are in danger of being possessed by Sodom. And it doesn't take much with Sodom because Sodom is incredibly seductive. Remember a couple of weeks ago when we looked at Lot, uh, his whole life was infected with Sodom. And when you get too much of Sodom uh, and own too much of it, it will end up owning you. And you become like Sodom. Your life looks like Sodom. And then I go down to uh, chapter 15, verse 1. And if I can reach into next week's text. But when it says, after this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield and I am your great reward. Is God your, your great reward today? Because here's the deal, we, we can take all kinds of things from Sodom because we today, we live in Sodom, whether it be its possessions or our sense of security and worth, our significance. But see, when we actually do, uh, we are actually making all of the stuff of Sodom our very great reward. Which king are you taking from? Which king do you derive your sense of worth, your significance, your security, your blessing? Which king right now gets your first and best? Because if you and I are going to live big lives, huge lives like Abram, to have impact, to leave his kind of legacy, we will be like Abraham and we will not take a thing from that evil king in his city. Whether it be our significance, our security, our identity, because we know possessing it will only end up possessing us. In fact, this week, if you guys want to hear a story of someone being possessed by Sodom, um, Ryan DeHaan on our podcast just gave his testimony. And not only on how Sodom completely possessed him, but how Jesus Christ came in and set him free and healed him. It's powerful. It's powerful. But not only see how Abraham deals with uh, the king of Sodom, but look at how Abraham responds to Melchizedek. Verse 20, it says that Abraham uh, gives Melchizedek a tenth of the spoils of war. Uh, All the first and best are going to this king of righteousness. And what he's doing here is he's tithing. 
And, and tithing in the Bible is more than just an act of allegiance. It's an act of worship, which is why God never instructs us to tithe to people. We're not even to tithe to kings. We are only to tithe to God because tithing is worship. It might even be, according to God, the highest form of worship. So think about this. Abram has just achieved a ridiculously great victory. He just defeated the four kings who defeated the five kings. And you could almost say right now, Abram might be the greatest person, the most powerful person walking the face of the earth. And yet here Abram encounters one even greater and Abram knows it. And he worships this one greater. He worships now, what is it that makes Melchizedek so great? Well, not only is he a king, but verse 18 says that he is also a priest of the Most High God. And, and it's like, this, this just comes out of nowhere, this Melchizedek, and then, then he's gone as quickly as he comes. And, you know, we'd probably just forget about him, except for the fact that the Bible doesn't forget about him. Because then a thousand years after Abraham when you have arguably the greatest king of Abram's people ruling Salem, which is now called Jerusalem, his name being David, King David, and King David penned so many of our Psalms. I mean, you know so many of them. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Psalm 27, the Lord is my light and my salvation, of whom shall I be afraid? Psalm 8, O Lord our God, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Psalm 103, bless the Lord. Oh, my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Psalm 40, I waited patiently for the Lord, and he turned to me, and he heard my cry, and he lifted me up out of the mud and the mire and the pit. I mean, it goes on and on. But there's one psalm that David writes that Jesus talks about more than any other psalm and actually applies the psalm to himself. In fact, this psalm becomes the most quoted text from the Old Testament by the New Testament writers, and it's Psalm 110. And Psalm 110 begins with these words, the Lord said to my Lord, and we're already like a little bit confused, what's going on here? Well, in the original language, the word for Lord are two different uh, words. Uh, it should read, Yahweh said to my Adonai. And Yahweh is the personal name of God, Adonai is the word for king, so in our English it should read, the Lord God said to my king. And David, Israel's greatest king, is actually writing this, and he's saying then about someone else, that's my king. Yahweh said to my king. So as great as David is, he's still looking up to someone and saying, let me tell you what the Lord God said to my king. And we know who that king is. It's the king to end all kings. It's God's king. It's the king we sang about today. We said Jesus Messiah. And what does God say about David's king? Well, Psalm 110, this is what it says. God says to this king, you will sit at my right hand and I will make all your enemies your footstool and you will destroy kings and you will reign over all nations and you will be the judge of the earth. 
And when Jesus shows up, he has the audacity to say, that text is about me. And then right in the heart of this text, in Psalm 110, God says about David's king, and my king is a priest forever in the order or in the manifestation of Melchizedek. There's this Melchizedek again. Or to just plainly put it, David is saying Messiah is King Melchizedek, a priest forever according to God's decree. And this is where my mind asks crazy questions like how could David write this? How could David know this? And I I see David actually making his own personal copy of Torah, of, of God's word, because that's what God instructed all kings to do. And so as he's making his own personal copy, I see David coming to Genesis 14 and like wondering, who is this Melchizedek dude? Who is this king who's, who's ruling from the same city that I now rule, Jerusalem, who comes out to bless Abram, just like God blessed Abram, who actually prays to the same God that Abram prays to. And even more than that, as great as Abram is, This Melchizedek is so great that Abram worshipped him. I think the lights went on for David, which is why I could write Psalm 110. This Melchizedek, king of God's eternal city, Jerusalem, must be that coming one, the Christ, the king of righteousness. And then if we're still left wondering, could it be, is it, is it not, we come to our New Testament and we come to Hebrews 7 and you have this fun text where it says, this Melchizedek was king of Salem, the priest of God most high. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and he blessed him and Abram gave him a tenth of everything So first, the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness, then also king of Salem. Salem means shalom, king of peace. Without, listen to this. Melchizedek is without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, resembling or manifesting the son of God. Melchizedek remains a priest forever. To me, this seals the deal. The one that Abram encounters in this valley is Christ. There can't be two competing Christ, king, priest, priestly kings, kings of righteousness in our narrative. And so what I find incredibly cool is right here at the outset of God's story, God is introducing us to the promised one, the one that he promised to Eve, here's the promised son. And he's not gonna just be a king, but he's gonna be a priest. And now you're like, well, why does that matter? You're talking language I don't even understand right now. Well, let me ask you a personal question. What do you look like? See, we're a culture today that's so obsessed with how we look, how we appear, which causes all of us to walk around with this mental image of what we not only look like to ourselves, but probably even more what we might 
look like to other people. And I'm not even talking about physical appearance right now. I'm talking about who we are as people, the deep aspects of our being, our character, our personhood, all that mind and heart stuff that people can't see. So in this regard, what do you look like? Because we all have a mental image of how we appear, how we look, both to ourselves and to others. And my guess is that today, if we were all honest, some of us would say, you know, I feel like I look okay. Some of us actually might say, you know, I actually feel pretty beautiful. And some of us might, maybe a lot of us would say, you know what, I actually, I feel ugly. I feel morally and spiritually ugly. BC, even this isn't the most important question we can ask. A more important question still is, what do we look like to God? Do you know what you look like to God? Do you feel beautiful? Do you feel ugly? Do you just feel okay? Now, why am I asking all these questions? I'm I'm trying to get you into the shoes of the ancients because this is why they said we, we absolutely need a priest, especially when it comes to a God that in their minds, what they would say about this God, he is first and foremost, holy, holy, holy. This is the God that we draw near to. This is the God that we worship. This is the God that we pray to. Psalm 24 says, who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. And so the ancients said, this is why we have priests. The priest's profession is to get us back in uh, so we can draw near to God. He can get us back into the garden of the Lord where we can walk with the holy. And to do so, we can't just flippantly walk in into God's presence. We're not entitled to God like on our terms. We need to approach God on his terms. And his terms are he's holy, holy, holy. And therefore... We need someone to wash us, to make us clean, to make us presentable, to approach this holy God, to deal with all that moral and spiritual ugly in our lives. And this is why the ancients couldn't understand or imagine a God without a temple and priests and sacrifices because it was the priest's profession to make a worshiper pure and beautiful and clean so they could approach this beautiful, glorious, holy God. Now, one of the great lies of the world that we live in is that we're told that we're all pretty good and that we live in a pretty good world and, 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 you know, if a problem flares up, it's nothing that we can't solve through our own intelligence and capabilities that, you know, if we just get the right politics, the right politicians, if we belong to the right political party or subscribe to the right philosophy or even more personal to that, if we just get the right job, marry the right person, have the right kind of education, live in the right kind of neighborhood, that everything in our lives is just going to be okay. That's such a lie. Our problems are so much greater than that, so much deeper than that. Our world is broken in every way. We are broken, lost. Look around. You see all the moral and spiritual ugly? I'm not talking about just parts of the world right now where it's so obvious to see. I'm talking about around us, even in us. 
And see, this all points back to the tragedy in Genesis 3 that we've been kicked out, we've been banished from Eden, we've lost God, and in losing that garden, we lost home, we became homeless, we lost the environment for which we were made. This is our great problem, and this is why Lot last week, we're all in many ways like Lot. We'll turn to anything, even something like Sodom, if it promises promises us to get us back into the garden of the Lord. And probably even more than all of this, do we have the guts to admit that the human race is infected with the tumor of sin and evil that leads to death? Who talks this way? The Bible does. Jesus does. And more and more, the the, the only words that that can describe our world, that can describe human behavior, are words like sin and evil. In Isaiah 64, it says, all of us have become like one who's unclean. All of us. It says, all of our righteous acts are like filthy rags. Left to ourselves, we could never get back to God. We could never get back into the garden of the Lord. We could never ascend God's holy hill. We're too filthy. And see, then there's many of us who just, we, we think we can clean ourselves. We, we, we can remedy all of our ugly. Uh, this is why some of you are so driven to succeed. This is why some of you are such perfectionists and people pleasers. This is why some of you can never admit wrong. You can never admit sin. You can never say sorry to anyone. You can never repent of anything. This is why some of you need to be right about everything. This is why some of you feel this need to always cover up all of your faults, all of your mistakes. This is why some of you blame others for all your problems. That's why some of you feel like life is just such a performance and you're not getting a good grade. See, this is all the ways in which we still wash. We're still trying to make ourselves clean. In fact, many of us just think that if I can just perform enough for God, then God will like me, then God will accept me. This is what religion is. This is the problem of religion, that I can just get God to like and accept me if I do enough for him. Some of us actually walk around thinking that we can fool God just like we can fool other people, that if I clean the outside of the cup, somehow the inside will get clean as well. We fake it till we make it. We can't hide from this God. We can't cover our stains. We can't cleanse ourselves. We need a priest. Not just a king who's going to defeat evil. We need a priest who will make us clean, who will make us beautiful. And that's the whole message of the Bible. And that's why God wants to introduce us to Melchizedek right at the beginning of the story. Because we have a priest who's going to remove all the ugly, all the filth, all the stains. 
I love how Isaiah 61 depicts this. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness as a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest, as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. And you need to see the picture that Isaiah is giving us. God says, I'm not going to just forgive you. I'm going to make you beautiful like a bride and a bridegroom on their wedding day. And how did our king of righteousness do this? Well, look at verse 18 of our text and what the king of righteousness offers Abram. He comes down to offer even someone as great as Abram what Abram needs, the bread and the wine. And the bread and the wine is not coincidence. That bread and that wine points to the king's body who will one day be broken for Abraham. And that wine, that blood that will be poured out for him. Because this king is more than a king. He is a priest He who knew no sin became sin. He became our sin. He became all of our ugly. And just think about that. And how he became all of our ugly on the cross. So we could become the righteousness of God. Beauty became the beast. To make the beast beautiful. And so I end by asking this morning, do you know Jesus as your great high priest? Not just as your king, not just as your friend. Do you know him as your high priest? Have you trusted him as your high priest? Do you know right now that you need Jesus to be more than just your moral example? That you need a priest Someone who can wash you and cleanse you to get you back into God. The king of righteousness offers us the same banquet that he offered Abram. His bread, the wine, the bread, his body broken, the wine, his blood shed. And when we come to this table, And we take it in because that's what this king is saying to us. Don't just believe about me. Take me in. Digest me. Experience me. Taste me. Know me. Trust me. Paul says our lives are hidden with him in Christ. We are hidden in Christ so that when the father looks at us, we are every bit as beautiful as his son, Jesus. Amen. Hallelujah. So this morning, God, with the table set, as your word says, you invite us to your banqueting table, and your banner over us is love. And that's what this meal is. We are eating the love of God, which is in Jesus Christ. And God, there is nothing that we can do to make you love us more. There's nothing that we can do to make you love us less that you're not going to love us when we become better. You just love us because you love us because you love us. 
God, let this meal change us this morning and conform us into the image of Jesus, we pray. Amen.